Amen. Thanks, Pedro and team and Tanner. Um, hey, uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word. Maybe you're using your phone. Maybe you're using your scripture journal. I love that, just looking around and seeing some of you guys using your Mark scripture journal, taking notes, following along. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today. And as you turn there, I want you to walk down memory lane with me to a time in your life where you were pushed out of your comfort zone to do something new. For me, it was when I I moved to Boston roughly 11 years ago. Uh, Actually, right before we moved, we were coming up on a trip to look for some housing, and, um, and I was also looking for a job. And so with a great communication degree, um, and a master's and partway through a PhD, um, I looked for a job as a server. Uh, that was the best I could contribute. So, uh, you know, th- when you start looking for jobs like that, you, you talk to your spouse, and she's like, hey, my favorite restaurant's P.F. Chang. So, hey, if I could go and work there and bring home food, it's a win-win. So I remember sitting down in the interview with Steve Dre um, at the P.F. Chang's, Cambridge Gallery Mall. Hey, we still text together. Steve, if you're watching, what's up, man? Um, and uh, I remember telling him, I've never served in my life, but I'm a follower of Jesus, and he's taught me a lot about serving. And I promise you, I'm going to do the best I can to be the best server you've ever had. Um, and so that was my pitch. I don't know if it worked. He hired me. Um, you know, and, and then you, know, you go through the triad of development, knowledge, experience, and coaching, right? So I'm studying the menu uh, intellectually, and experientially, you know, I'm tasting, I'm eating it up. The lettuce wraps, the, the Chang spicy chicken, the Mongolian beef. Any other shout outs out there? Okay. Um, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm also learning what, what does the server do? How do, how, how do they go about, you know, what they're doing? So, you know, I pass the test on the menu and then I get partnered up uh, with a shadow. Right, so I'm just I'm I'm not really getting paid anything, but I'm just watching. Right, um, I'm following along this shadow and, and learning all the tips of how to go about and be a server. But eventually, the day comes where like they don't pay you to keep being a shadow. It's like, all right, John, like today's the day. This table is yours. You know, so you know I've, I've had you know you go from knowledge to experience. Now it's for, I've got to go practice and they're going to be my coach. That's the third piece of the try to development. They're going to coach me and tell me all the things that, that I can do better and, and develop. And so, you know, I go to the table and I just want to make sure I get the spill right first. Like, so it's like, hey, hey, my name is John. Man, super pumped that you're here today. Hey, I want to start off by making some of our, our special sauce here. This is some, you know, hot spicy mustard. Here's our chili paste. Hey, and, and this is our pasta sauce. This goes great with the lettuce wraps. Hey, could I get you started with something to drink and maybe, a, you know, know, some of these lettuce wraps. You can go chicken or vegetarian. You know, I'm just trying. I, it's still there. Like, I, that was rote memory for me, and I, I just don't want to blow it. And so then I take the order, and then I come back, and, you know, if you've never, like, held one of those serving trays, um, it, it's awkward. It's weird at first. Like, it, it just doesn't come natural. You know, after a couple years, like, you're just running through the restaurant with it, and, like, sometimes at the restaurant, you just watch these servers, and you're like, man, how do they do that? But, like, you just get the feel of it. You know, it's kind of like just Tom Brady. All right, I won't go there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I bring the, the, the first time that I'm like bringing drinks to the table and my goal is like, please, Lord, don't let me spill this all over their lap. You know, I just, I don't want to be that guy, you know. Um, so you're going down memory lane. That, that was for me. Man, like you, you can go through all the knowledge, but until you actually do it, man, you are as nervous as I'll get out. I don't know what that experience is for you. But I guarantee you, 
the disciples faced a very similar experience when we come to Mark 6. Jesus had called the 12. They had begun spending time with him. And now, guess what's going to happen? He's sending them out. This shouldn't shock them, right? I mean, Tanner just quoted Mark 1.17, where Jesus told them at the very beginning, follow me, and I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. They knew from the beginning that they were going to multiply. Later on, in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this. He says, and he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We've already looked at this. Like, to be a follower of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he's teaching us this. It means to be with and to be sent. Say that with me. It means to be with and to be sent. You guys got it. It means to receive and it means to give. It means proximity and ministry. It means to sit and to go. Sit, go, as Tanner taught us. Sit and go. Sit, go. Go look at the sit, go sign, and you think Mark, and you think be a disciple. It it means living in the multiplication middle. Like when he called them, he's telling them from the beginning. You may not remember. This is what the multiplication middle is. You got Jesus, you got me, and you got the world. Jesus multiplies himself in me, and Jesus in me is multiplied to those in the world. And this is what it means to be a disciple. I live in the middle. I'm with and I am sent. What was anticipated now happens. They've gone from the shadow experience to now saying, hey, this is your table. It's your turn. Jesus begins to shift the responsibility and give ownership to his disciples. So, I guarantee you, they were shaking when Jesus brought them in and said, hey, I'm I'm sending you out. And you know what? That's okay. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But hey, let's read. Let's read Mark 6. And let's see what happens here when Jesus sends them out. We're going to today look at verse 7 all the way through 29. And I know the last part of this section is about the death of John the Baptist. And as we read it, you may be thinking, Man, how does this connect with like being sent? But just trust me, hang on. We're gonna connect the dots here for you. So God's word says this, Mark 6, verse seven. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known 
Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And then I want to read verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. What we see here is a foretaste of the mission that Jesus has for his church. We know there's there's much more to come, right? We know how the story ends. Like some of the last words of Jesus with his disciples is the Great Commission where he says, authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. We know the book of Acts says, hey, wait here. You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and you're gonna be my witnesses. We know what's coming. Here we see a foretaste. Jesus is giving them like a trial mission for eventually what he is going to use them for. And so, as we think about their mission and our mission, here's the point that I want to challenge you with today. Three words. Live every day sent. Live every day sent. On the one hand, just think about this here for a second. It should not surprise us that Jesus is sending the, the disciples. I've already talked to you about like, the multiplication middle, with and sent. On the other hand, this is completely 
surprising. Do you think they're ready to be sent? I mean, we're not even convinced that they truly get who Jesus is, right? We know what's gonna happen later in the Gospels. Peter's gonna deny him. They're gonna flee him. They're gonna doubt and question. And yet Jesus sends them. Why? This is the point. Our sending is not about our ability, but about Jesus. Did you hear that? I love this truth. Like, as I was wrestling through this week, like, man, what does this mean for us? Like, the sending of them and then thinking about Jesus sending us, it's this. We think, man, we're weak. I can't be sent. God, you can't use me. And Jesus says, yeah, have you read Mark 6? They weren't ready, and I sent them. And the point is that it would resonate with the church that Mark was writing to and to the church of Redemption Hill, that it's not on our ability, it's on Jesus who sends us. Are you ready to live every day sent? And I love how this is flowing from what Tanner taught last week. Man, he, he gave us, hey, here's some principles for like how to grow in faith, right? And so like principle one, number one, I think, was hey, faith looks beyond the surface. So if like you wanna look at the surface today, line these 12 disciples up and it's like, seriously, Jesus? Like you're sending them. And, and it's like, you can put me in the same boat. Probably you can put our whole church there. Like, I mean, seriously, Jesus, you want to send us to be your, your messengers to take the gospel to the end of the world? Yes. Faith looks beyond the surface. It unlocks the power of God. It moves the heart of Jesus. I want to invite you today. You're, you may be ready just to, man, I'm about to tune John out. This is not for the spiritual, the, the super Christian. This is for the everyday disciple. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you five principles for living everyday sent. And the first one is this. We see it right here in the text. We go in the authority of Jesus. Look here. Verse 7. He called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, first of all, just some observations here, two by two. He's not sending them out alone. Why is this? Um, it could be just like that this was the Jewish custom. You, you know, what, what may be resonating in your mind is going back to like Ecclesiastes chapter four, where the author writes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. But you see this practice in the early church. Go read Acts. Peter and John are, to, are together there at the very beginning. Then you keep reading, and you've got Paul and Barnabas. Then, like, when they split up, you've got Barnabas and Mark and Paul and Silas. Like, you see these pairs all the way through the gospel of Acts. Look, as you think about living every day, on mission, don't do it alone. I mean, go find somebody. Go get connected with the group. That's why we talk about this in group together. We, want, we don't want to be lone rangers going and engaging God's mission. We want to do this collectively together as a church. He sends them out two by two. Matt, Mark doesn't tell us where he sent them, but there are a couple of parallel passages. You could go to, to Matthew and you could go to Luke. And Matthew, 
It says the, the 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then Mark gives us this note. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This is what we need to get. He gave them authority. First, what does this teach us about Jesus? Like, check it. Jesus isn't saying, hey, God, would you give them authority? Jesus gives them authority. And we've already seen authority a few times in the Gospel of Mark. Earlier on, I think it was Mark chapter 1, it says they were astonished at Jesus because he was teaching as one who had authority. Later on in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins. So like we've seen a few examples of Jesus' authority here. And, and this is a result of him being the son of God. He can pass his own authority on to others. We see this fully in the Great Commission. I've mentioned it already. At the very beginning in, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. When we live everyday sin, we are going in the authority of Jesus. And what implications does this have? This means we go in confidence and we go in power. We go in confidence and we go in power. Think about this. If I'm going in the authority of Jesus, I'm engaging as if Jesus were actually there. Like when I'm going and, and I'm, I'm doing what he's calling me to do, it's as if Jesus is doing it. You're going in my authority. Now, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what's happening. Like You've received power, and this authority is, man, when I engage in mission, it's not John's mission, it's God's mission. He is working through us. You may not feel qualified, but neither were the disciples. What qualifies us is I've been with. I've been with Jesus. You know, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in Acts, the early church is, is like, is this recounting the spread of the gospel? I love what Acts 4.13 says. Reflecting on Peter and John, listen to this. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. Let me just pause here. What did they see in Peter and John? They were uncommon, they were common, and uneducated. They saw the boldness, and they're like, man, they haven't been educated. They're common men. And it says this, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what it says. They recognized these men have been with, with Jesus. That's what qualifies us for the mission. We're with, and we're sent, and we go in the authority of Jesus over and over. Go read the Bible, and you're going to see example after example of God using people where we would say, there's no way, God, that that's going to happen. But he does it that way. As elders this past week, Tanner, he led us through reading uh, the story of Gideon, where God basically dwindles. If I get my math right, I think it was like, was it 42,000 or 32,000? 32,000. He dwindles it down to 300 men. He's like, all right, those 300. Yeah, those are the ones that are going to go. Like, God, what are you doing? 
Like, you want to get like 32,000 or 300? He's like, no, give me the 300 that are going to get down on the water and lap it like this. Those are the ones I want. Look, here's what God wants from you. He's not looking for the educated common, and there's nothing against that. He's like, I want people who've been with Jesus. And if they'll be with Jesus, they're going to go in the authority of Jesus. We go in the authority of Jesus. Second, what we see here is we trust in the provision of Jesus. Look here, verse 8. Man, I better pick it up. we got a lot to cover. All right. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. A staff, potentially as a walking stick or it's a protection against wild animals. They got their belt there. They got sandals. They got one tunic. One tunic, um, it, it's not exactly like a shirt or undergarments. It, it would have been a long garment that would have been worn close to the skin underneath the cloak. He's like, take one of those, not two. And what not to take? Hey, don't take any bread. Don't take a bag. Don't take any money. It, it, you know, for some, hey, it's vacation week. It's like, hey, you're, you're preparing for vacation week and you're like going through and you're laying out. And one commentator says, it's like you laid everything out and you're like, no, I'm just gonna grab my toothbrush and we're rolling. Like the, hey, that, that's what he says here. And, and so if you were to look at, the, at Matthew and Luke, I'm just gonna highlight this briefly. They seem to suggest that they weren't allowed to take sandals or a staff either. Um, so it seems like it's, it's an apparent contradiction. I think the best solution there is that one of two possibilities. One, that what they're talking about is not to get a new staff or sandals or not to take an extra staff or sandals. But, but I'm more concerned at, like, what's the larger point of this? Like, what is he getting at? Why is, why is he telling them this? One, I believe this, they were supposed to travel as light as possible. Two, I think it suggests that this was going to be a relatively quick missionary journey. Actually, the language here matches the language in what God told uh, the Israelites to take when they fled Egypt. The same four things, Exodus 12, 11. And they were to leave in haste. So like, th th this was a quick journey. So hey, don't spend time like gathering all of this support. You just take these minimal things and you go. But I think overarching is this. They were to depend and trust entirely on God, not in their supplies or their training. I love what Kent Hughes says. He says, the minimum of provisions were meant to call out the maximum of faith. Faith looks beyond the surface. How did, how did God provide for them? Let's keep reading. Well, if they weren't to take these things, surely they needed these things. It says this in verse 11. At verse 10, and when he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So if, if you were to go read the account in Matthew, Matthew mentions, in addition to entering the house, that a labor deserves his wages. In other words, they're going and proclaiming the gospel, they're casting out demons, they're healing, and, and as people are receptive to that word and invite them in, that's how God is gonna care and provide for them. And that's exactly what happens. God prepared receptive hearts and homes to receive them. But there were also gonna be those who would reject them. 
And so Jesus gives this encouragement. Hey, what, how do you respond to those who reject you? He says this, you are to shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Receiving them was tied with receiving Jesus. And rejecting them was as if they were rejecting Jesus. And so this shaking the dust off of your feet was an illustration showing that their rejection of Jesus leaves that town accountable to God. If you go read Acts, you see this in Acts 13, 51. Paul shakes off the dust of his feet. It says, when the Jews like rose up and they persecuted him and drove him out of the city, Paul says, hey, we're now turning to the Gentiles. And then later on in Acts, Acts 18, uh, verse six, Paul says, he shook his garments. He says, your blood is on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a picture here of that they were speaking and preaching and proclaiming about who Jesus is, inviting them to repent and believe, and they were rejecting that message. And so these disciples would say, hey, man, this was an illustration for them to say, you're going to give an account to God. My job as a, as a sower is to sow. My job as a disciple is to be sent and to go proclaim, you're not really rejecting me, you're rejecting Jesus, and you'll give an account to him one day. Did God provide for them? Mark doesn't tell us this, but I love this verse in Luke. Later on in Luke, Luke twenty two thirty five, 35, it says, and Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? Anybody know what they said? One word, nothing. Your temptation right now might be to take your scriptural journal and write all the excuses and reasons why you can't be sent. They lacked nothing, and neither will you. We go in the authority of Jesus. We trust and depend on the provision of Jesus. Third principle, we imitate the ministry of Jesus. 12 and 13 gives us a summary of what this mission looked like. It says, so they went out, proclaimed, that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In the parallel accounts, Luke says they preached the gospel. The focus here is on repentance. In Matthew, it says they proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What should come to our minds and the readers of Mark, they would have supplied what Mark 1 says. Because what this is is nothing other than the ministry of Jesus. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus. They called people to repentance. Turn from running after the world, living in your selfish ways, and come follow Jesus. Come run after God. He wants your life. It was a change in life. If you want to call yourself a disciple, you can't be a disciple and not repent. To be a disciple means I'm with 
It means I'm following Jesus. I'm, I'm turning from John Chastain's ways, and Jesus now is my king. I'm following him. You can't, like if you want to be a disciple today, it means you've got to die. You die and you say, Jesus, that's my king. I'm following him. They cast out demons, and it says they anointed the sick with oil and they healed them. This is, there's only one other place in the New Testament where it says the anointing with oil. That's found in James 5.15, where James says the elders, call upon the elders of the church to, to anoint with oil and to lay hands and to pray over for healing for those who are sick. And, and I think the picture here is the oil was not so much about a medicinal effect, but it was a symbol of God's presence and God's blessing. So let me summarize. What did their mission look like? Word and deed, gospel and acts of compassion, declare and display. They aren't sent to do a new work. They're to continue and extend the work of Jesus. And, and really, a sense, this wasn't the disciples' mission. It was Jesus. They were an extension of what Jesus was doing. The focus isn't on innovation, but continuation. They go in his authority, and they participate in and further his mission. To be a disciple is to live every day with and sent. Let me just give you a few nuggets here as you think about living every day as a disciple. And I wish I had more time here. Um, an everyday missionary, a person who lives every day sent, practices mission where God has placed you. So if you want to talk, like try to wrap some practical around this, just reflect this week, where has God placed me? Who is my family? Who are my neighbors? Who do I work with? Who are on my kids' baseball team? Like that is where God has placed you. And then do this. Bring gospel intentionality into every day and every area of your life. I'm gonna give you a, an acronym here to help you. Go bless people. I just, I just ordered a new book. I'm going to work through it, but I skimmed through it. Um, but it's called Bless Everyday Strategies to Live the Everyday Mission of God. B, begin with prayer. L, listen. E, eat. S, serve. S, story. Begin with prayer. Listen. Go, hey, how are you? And listen. Eat. Serve. And story. Share your story. All right, I got to move on. Every day, every area with gospel intentionality. It's primarily intersection, not addition. Intersect all of life. Then we go to this whole section on John the Baptist. And I'm going to have to summarize here for sake of time. But you may be asking, okay, why are we now, like why has Mark included this before he even talks about the return? Like verse 30 is when it tells us they returned. But Mark has included this section on John the Baptist. And here's why. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard of it. 
for Jesus' name had become known. Hey, he's hearing about Jesus. Man, this Jesus guy, it had come to him. Probably this is highlighting the impact of the mission that these disciples just went on. They're hearing about who the, Herod's hearing about who this Jesus is. The last we had heard of John the Baptist, Mark 1.14, he was arrested. Mark hadn't told us anything else yet. We just know he's arrested. He's been put in prison. Now Mark comes back in and he fills in the rest of the story. But look what happens here. King Herod heard of Jesus' name. And what is he? And then it goes into this. It raised this question: Who is Jesus? Right? And we're given three options here. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. King Herod becomes paranoid, wondering if John's death on his hands is coming back to haunt him. So who is Jesus? We'll come back to John the Baptist question here in a second. The second option is he's Elijah. Why would they say Elijah? In Malachi, the very end, last book in our English Bibles in the Old Testament, um, Malachi says this, behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Hey, maybe this is the fulfillment. God had said he was going to send Elijah. The other option, maybe he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy, the last book of the law, Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. If you were to go continue reading at the very end of Deuteronomy, you're, you're listening to the description of Moses' death. And it says, since Moses, there has not arisen a prophet like him who knew God face to face. And for all the miraculous signs and wonders that he did, hey, is this potentially the new Moses? But then we get John, we get Herod's conclusion. He, he's saying, no, it's, it's not Elijah. No, it's, it's not another prophet. This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised. And so what happens here is that we're taken back to earlier events to explain how John was killed. And here's what Mark is doing. Mark wants to connect John the Baptist's death with discipleship and mission. And here's the point. The fourth principle I want to share with you. You must count the cost of following Jesus. Count the cost of following Jesus. Why was John the Baptist arrested? This is what 17 through 20 tells us. And I'm going to have to summarize quickly here. Verse 17, Herod is the one who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. It says, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Hey, it's about to get like, the, the, the family tree here is about to get messy. Um, so like, just hang tight here with me. So John has, so Herod has John arrested um, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So like Herod was married 
And then his brother Philip was married to Herodias. And so what happens, just like summarizing the story, Herod convinces Herodias that she is to divorce her husband to marry him, but at the same time, he divorces his own wife. Like, it's a, it's a complete mess. Like, can you imagine the family reunion that's happening? Like, all right, that's another story. Um, but like, like, yeah, you just read through this. So, so Herodias, uh, let me pick back up verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, John the Baptist was telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Hey, going back to the Old Testament, to the law. Hey, Herod, what you're doing is not honoring to God. I mean, what about the courage of John here? Just confronting Herod about, about what God's demands are on his life. And so it says here, verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herodias took it personal. Hey, you, don't, you didn't even want him to marry me, and so, man, revenge is coming. You're mine, John. And so it says, verse 20, it says, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod, you see the, the wrestling of his soul here. Herod knew there was nothing John had done to deserve arrestment or probably even death. Like he knew, what does it say here? It was, he was a righteous and holy man. Yet he's married to Herodias who wants him dead. And so what happens here? 21 through 28 basically describes how is it that John was killed? And there's a big party. Herod throws a big party. It's his birthday week. He invites like, listen to the list of the people he invited here. Nobles, military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. You've got the wealthy. You've got the powerful. You've got the prestigious. And then what happens at this party, I mean, you could imagine what was happening um, at, at, at Herod's party, right? And it says that Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guest. Very vague. We're not told a ton of details. Our mind could probably wonder what kind of dance was happening here. I mean, it's possible that this dance was sensual in nature. It's also possible, some commentators note, that this might have been a, a girl as young as 12 and that this should be seen more as like a child's performance. Um, if it was a child's performance, it really blew them away. Either way, like what happens here is it says, um, that she pleased everyone, and as a result, what does Herod do? Hey, I will give you anything you ask up to half of my kingdom. Yeah, some of your ears may be going to Esther. This is echoing language um, with Esther and the king there. Hey, I'll give you half of my kingdom, but let's jump back in here. So what does she do? It says she hurries off, and she go grabs her mother's ear. Because who's the real mover in the story here? The real mover in the story is Herodias. She's the one who wants John the Baptist dead. And so now she's willing to even sacrifice her daughter to see John the Baptist killed. And so the daughter, whom Josephus says her name was Salome, goes off and says, hey, mom, hey, man, Herod has said up to half his kingdom. Whatever I ask, what should I ask? Hey, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that may freak you out a little bit. Yeah, it freaks me out, like on a platter. Um, the point there was to show proof of his death. 
I, I don't imagine that she was taking the head and like keeping it somewhere, but it was like, hey, man, yes, he's dead. And so what does Herod do? Look at the text here. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Why do you think he was sorry? You see the wrestling of his soul here. He's wrestling with between what is right and what is expedient. He knew the right thing to do is that there's no way that John deserved death. And yet, he gave into the fear of man. Like, if he doesn't follow through on his word, his authority and his kingdom is at stake. He's got all of these high-ranking officials here. And so what does he do? It says, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And she gave it to her mother. All right, John, you need to wrap this up. What does this have to do with living everyday scent? Briefly, John's death is a warning to every disciple. It is a warning that the call to follow Jesus is a call to lay down your life. Now, that doesn't mean that every disciple is going to die. But, but we know this, this is already foreshadowing another death to come. Whose death? Jesus. Just like John came in and said, hey, I'm not he. I'm preparing the way for the one who's after me, who's greater. He's laying down his life in a similar way that the one after him, Jesus, is going to face death. And so like this whole principle, count the cost of following Jesus. John faithfully faced death. Jesus was faithful and faced death. And every disciple is called to come and die. We'll see this later in Mark, but I want to go ahead and, and read it together today. Jesus says, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Herod sought to gain the whole world and at it forfeited his soul. And so here's what Mark is doing. As we are sent, he's reminding us we are sent in the authority of Jesus and it is a call that no matter what, We've got to be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. But I want to end on a more positive note. And it's the fifth principle. And the principle is something that I want you to know. God's mission is unstoppable. Step back and think about what just happened here. Herod thinks he's stopping a work of a man who says he's been sent by God. And what happens? Things are even growing with greater authority. Hey man, I've, killed, I've already killed John and now he's wondering who this Jesus guy is. Hey, has John the Baptist come back from the dead? Hey, I thought I stopped that. Nope, now God's at work in Jesus. And you know what? They're gonna kill Jesus. And guess what's gonna happen? 
The church is going to be birthed and they're going to go take the gospel and it's going to spread even greater. And you go read through Acts and you see all of these disciples, you know what's going to happen? They're going to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. They're not all recorded in Acts. Some of them are recorded where they are killed for following Jesus. But what happens? God's mission continues to spread. The death of John the Baptist couldn't stop God. The death of Jesus couldn't stop God. Martyrdom in the early church can't stop God. And nothing today is going to stop God. His mission is to see disciples multiplied among every tribe, tongue, language, and people. And that's why we exist. The church exists for the mission of God. And when that mission is done, he's going to call us home. But he hasn't called us home yet, so you know what we're supposed to do? Live with and sent. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on Mark 6, we see these disciples who were surprisingly sent. And God, I I think probably we could all stand here and say, man, this call to be with and sent is surprising as well. God, we confess at times we don't feel that we have the merit, that we don't have the power, that we don't have everything that we need for your mission. But God, God, I just pray like that, that we would see here that this is a call to live everyday sin, not because there's something great about us, but because we have been with Jesus and there's something great about him, his power, his Holy Spirit, his word. And so guys, pray you would raise up a church at Redemption Hill that we go in your authority. When we hear you say go, we go. It may be go to the neighbor. It may be go and share with your, your children. It may be go and share with your coworker. We go in your authority and we trust that your word is gonna do what you say it'll do. God, we're gonna trust in your provision. God, I pray today, I don't know what it is that, that somebody's wrestling with a call to go and they're like, but God, I don't have this that they would see with fresh eyes of faith beyond the surface to see, God, you'll provide, that they would step out in faith and trust, God, you're gonna provide everything they need. Maybe it's for them to go to their neighbor. Maybe it's to provide the words they need to say. Maybe it's to provide the job they need to go to go to the ends of the earth. God, as we go, it's not our mission. It's your mission. God, I pray for even some today. Maybe they're like, man, this John Chastain dude is crazy. He's talking about counting the cost and following Jesus. But there's nothing better to give our lives to than to Jesus and the Great Commission. God, we need jobs, but life is not about a job. God, would you free us today? Help us to to run after your mission. God, give us faith, give us trust that you're unstoppable. God, we thank you for your power of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to live every day sin. We need your help. We need your grace. We ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.